0: Hello and welcome again to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. I'm Andrew Bracey and in this series we speak with doctors about all the amazing and fascinating things they're doing in and alongside medicine as they forge their own paths. My guest in this episode is Dr. Chris Moy, the current Vice President of the Australian Medical Association. He took up that post uh, back in August. Um, He's had a really interesting career before that in terms of the various committees and and roles that he's had, his association with e-health in particular and and palliative care and and aged care and a lot of reforms that that he's worked really hard to to get done um, over his time. In this chat, he speaks about how he got into that life. There was a lot of anger that was driven by it and um, he wanted to, to, to make some changes and he's talks about how he manages his medico-political career alongside um, all the other responsibilities and commitments that he has going on in life. It was a really interesting chat. Um, before we get to that, of course, I need to quickly uh, remind you all that, again, the Creative Creative Medicine Conference (CCM 2020 is right around the corner now. It's the 12th and 13th of December. It's a virtual-only event this year, of course. Um, you can... Go to the Creative Careers in Medicine website where you can get your ticket still to be able to attend virtually online over that weekend. Um, Or of course, you can sign up to to be able to catch up with some of those sessions later on. If you go to creativecareersinmedicine.com, follow the links to the events page and you can get signed up if you're not already. You can also read there about the members program um, and how you can bundle that with your event ticket. The Speakers list is really feel like it's looking amazing at the moment. The one of the the, the headliner though um, is that Norman Swan. I think I mentioned last week in the previous episode. Norman Swan will be joining the conference. Um, sadly, it's at the expense of Dr. Carl krizelnicki who had to pull out um, for personal reasons, but we're delighted to have Norman be able to, to be part of the conference and I can't wait to see what he has to say. So if you're interested in hearing what he and all of the other speakers are going to be um, bringing to us this year, creativecareersinmedicine.com for the links to the events page. With all that out of the way, I'll move on to our chat with Dr. Chris Moy. Dr Chris Moy, thank you so much for joining the CCIM podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having
0: me. Now, you've had a very busy time. We were just talking before I hit record about how flat out your morning is with, with various back-to-back interviews and you've managed to make time for us to have a chat, so I'm very, very grateful. You're also obviously based in Adelaide um, and with the COVID um, mini-cluster or the, the mini-lockdown that you guys had, the very strict and sudden um, uh enforcement of that lockdown there fortunately and or maybe frustratingly it turned out to uh, not have been as necessary as initially thought but with obviously there's still some cases there to to be dealing with and a public that's been pretty sort of shocked or stunned by that that whole process what's the last couple of weeks been like for you not only as a GP at the coalface but also as a doctor in one of the most sort of prominent health roles uh, not only in the state but nationally as, as vice president of the AMA?
1: Look, um, okay, it's been an extremely busy time. It's just been another a blip up for us um, and has been pretty much for the last about three or four years for me, but particularly this year, obviously, yeah. COVID. Um, yeah, we've, we've actually had a few things going on at the same time. We've had, um, obviously, this um, significant um, um, matters coming up to, with regards to the COVID outbreak, but at the same time, we've been... Um, working at the, with the government with regards to uh, an abortion legislation yeah. to criminalise abortion in South Australia at the same time. Plus also uh, nationally, uh, we're doing some work to sort of um, back some um, 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 legislation from Zali Segal with respect to the climate effects of uh, um on, on health mm. and um, and also here we're doing some a lot of work on culture and bullying and we've just managed to get an amendment to some critical legislation in South Australia to embed the responsibility for improving culture and reducing bullying with uh, local health boards, which is a first for australia so yeah it's been a lot oh, at the same time
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean it's it's uh, you've just mentioned a, a number of things I was going to get to sort of later in the chat about you know, these issues that, that doc, more and more, perhaps not, you know, that it's not necessarily a new thing in, in every single one of these cases, but more and more that the, the, the health a- issues, elements of a lot of these sort of social debates are taking precedence um, and, and doctors are playing more and more, you know, it seems to be playing an increasing role. Um, I was going to talk to you about, you know, things like the Medivac, back laws and, and, um, and some of the climate change issues as well, perhaps a bit later, but I just, perhaps first I wanted to sort of talk about, you know, obviously... One of them we mentioned up front was COVID, which I think in South Australia was a really interesting case study for a number of reasons. And I don't want to spend the whole time talking about COVID, obviously, but just you know this idea that 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 what happened in South Australia was essentially set off by by you know by one case, and now there's sort of debate around whether or not this the, the guy at the centre of who, who and you know, whether he was truthful or not, and and, and all of this, and the South Australia. It was my understanding that South Australian health, oh, SA Health. Weren't, weren't going to be giving certain details to police because they were deemed confidential and privileged. I guess I, I'm bringing this up because it, it sort of starts a whole real, really interesting conversation about patient privacy and what that means in the midst of a pandemic.
1: Mm. Um, look, there's probably several issues. Um, I, I, I've actually been very supportive of the decision-making in South Australia. Um, I've actually been very much involved in South Australia, as it's in Victoria, there's actually been a sense of uh, working together, all groups, Um the government, the minister, myself, the opposition leader—we've um, all actually worked together, and mm. you've probably noticed in South Australia there hasn't actually been, surprisingly, a lot of politicisation of what's gone on, um, and, um, and and generally everybody's been pretty much right. look. There's been quibbles, and you can mm. see you know little things that have gone on, and there's been unhappiness even amongst my sector about certain certain aspects of things. But if you look at it as a whole, it's actually been very well managed, and that's because there's been a level of uh, coordination, which I think has led to a few things. It's, it's, it's led to a matter of trust. So when I speak to the the, the SA Health or the Minister, there's a level of trust that, I'm, that they will listen to me, but the mm. other way, when, when, when I'm hearing what they're doing, I understand what's going on. And in some ways, that's been really important in South Australia because the, 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 the level of trust in the community is important because... What it means then is that the, the Joe Blow on the street will actually go, gee, okay, everybody's um, kind of on the same wavelength and, and believes in what's going on. And then they'll follow what they've been told. Yeah. Um, I think in Victoria, um, without you know having worked with the Victorian president over there, that there really has been a major politicisation of it. Mm. Um, and also a lack of engagement with major stakeholders, a lack of listening to people outside of the, the government and the, the, the internal health system. Um, and they they haven't listened to the AMA quite often. The AMA actually told them to go to lockdown about a month before they should have gone. They did right. in the end. And see what happened, they went to lockdown for four months. Um, so South Australia, in fact, um, um, I, I, I was speaking to them and having seen and been involved in what happened, frankly, the really poor decision making in Victoria, um, worked with the South Australian government and explained to them that if they thought they needed to go, then they should go hard and early because yeah. it's... Close that. And, and, and although people are second guessing that that three day lockdown because of this, um, what was what appears to be, and I won't go into the legal aspects of it, the you know provision of information which wasn't didn't turn out to be mm, true. Mm. Um, in fact, I think it's probably made a difference. Those three days made a lot of difference. It actually allowed a lot of uh, closing down a lot of the cases, yeah. and in fact, may have averted what happened in Victoria. yes yeah,
2: sure. um,
1: because they did it. Um, so, look, i paper paint the picture of what's happening in South Australia and how I, I prefer to work, ideally, um, which is to work together with yeah. stakeholders and, and everybody, but, but when time comes, I have to talk up against them, I will do as well.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, the other thing that you mentioned was about the privacy aspects, and, 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 and this was an issue about um, whether an individual had uh, given the right information about what... Uh, where they'd been. Now I don't know the circumstances, and there may have been other, because it appears that maybe there may have been other people involved as well. As I understand it, because it was very difficult for one person to say one thing yes, and other sure. people not to know about it, because he was working at this at this uh, pizza house. Um, what I'd say is that there is um, one of the tricky balances will be uh, with regards to contact tracing and people who are. Contacted for contact with the contract tracing is not to scare them off.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was the, that was one of the things I was asking. I mean, yeah. that's, this, that, this, and, and I'm not so, I'm not sort of second guessing mm. what's going on in South Australia for mm. a second because you know it is you know especially mm. me as as a, very much a, a punter on the sidelines. But you mm. know it, it makes sense that you know you you make the decisions in it you know very quickly to, to do what you, you as best you possibly can. But what no, so, the, the ramifications yeah, so, are, what what that might mean for people's future behaviours, like does it yes. does it scare what, them?
1: We, what we need to say, yeah, what we need to say to people is ensure to People that the privacy of what they say, if they come in contact trace, is um, is is protected because people need that privacy because yeah. otherwise they will hold back information. The flip side, however, is if there is deliberate miss. Um, information, yeah. which then causes harm to others, that there could be penalties for that. Yeah. And I think that's the separation. Now, that is a very difficult separation to really uh, play to the Joe Blow of the street. No, no, well, I think that's the aspect, but it's not that easy. Yeah. And I think that's got to be the interesting aspect because we do need people to have the confidence to explain where they're being, know that that's confidential. But I think the flip side is the community does expect that what is said is truthful, yes. particularly if, for example, somebody um, on purpose um, said something to harm somebody else, that that, that should not be allowed yeah. and there should be penalties for that because then, you know, for example, if somebody said this person, uh, I was in contact with this person If they then when they hadn't and that person has to go into two weeks quarantine and misses out on the job, for example, because it was done to stop them yeah. getting a job, yeah. well, that well that would be... that, that, that people would not – I don't think that passes the public test side. No, no, no. So, I mean,
0: it's, it's a raft of sort of legal and ethical dilemmas that absolutely. sort of spring from it.
1: Absolutely. And, and it's, it's complex, but I think it's that balance of the uh, uh, welcoming people and ensuring their privacy, but making it clear that if, if they deliberately misinform, which may cause harm, that there may be penalties for that. Just
0: on that issue, um, we can move off COVID in a moment because I want to talk about you and your – your journey obviously which is the point of the conversation but just since we're on it i just i did one of the things i did want to ask you as someone in in a you know, prominent um uh, health public health role you know obviously advocating and, and, and for the profession as well but the ama very much um it is is also a public health advocacy um body in itself as well is it been sort of heartening or edifying to see you know you, you mentioned a moment ago the way that um that you and you know the, the ama have been able to in your case, in South Australia, work quite constructively with the authorities to, to, to get the right sort of things in place. Um, obviously, they've, you know, they've got their own health department um, experts as well, in, as well. but when everyone's working together, is there, has it been sort of nice to see doctors being listened to? And we're, you know, we're in a, um, especially in you know, uh, a climate at the moment, well, you know, internationally, whatever, where, where people of the science aren't always um, as readily listened to, but in the middle of a pandemic, it's, the doctors have really stepped up. Has that been your experience?
1: Uh, look, it's been particularly hardening. I'm not sure what you saw recently. Uh, the AMA just recently topped the um, um, global um, um, uh, ethics index in Australia um, 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 in terms of uh, ethical uh, ethical behaviour and, in fact, uh, increased its percentage by some massive amount wow, in the last that. year. Um, Congratulations. And, uh, <laughs> worth looking at. But I, I suppose what I'd say is that um, we have a, we're a very unusual organisation because we, um, if you look at our objects of our organisation, we're not a union like a lot of people think.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, although we
1: do protect, obviously support our members, and, yeah. and that's a really important role. But our job, if you look at our objects, is the furthering of the interests of the, the care of the and the health of the our patients and the community, and therefore the support of our members insofar as that uh, that aim, and that. If you really understand that, that's a really um, important thing. So our job is to further those things and always advocate for those things. And I, I always go back to those because I think sometimes you can get <laughs> misled and tricked and diverted yeah, from, yeah. from what you're doing. But I think if people understand that that's what our job is and, and to always work in that area and to hold to those through, our job is then just to, to hold the line on that. And it's not always to be nice either. I mean, our job, we can't be nice. If we, if we agree with everything and any of it's wrong, that's not <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. what people need to understand as an organisation is our MA. What we go out, we, tr- we basically uh, work together as in representing our members and the profession in terms of developing clear cut policies which align with the things that I've just indicated, the objects of the organisation, and then to prosecute them and really to hold to the fact that we're, we're consistent about that. And that, then hopefully people will actually understand and trust what we say. Mm even if sometimes sometimes it'll be because we're aligned with the government and with other stakeholders, but other times it'll be against them. But as long as we stick with there, uh, we can all live with ourselves.
0: I wanted to, as I flagged earlier, rewind your career um, and talk about so your journey to this, what, how, how you've gotten to this place where you're now one of the most prominent doctors in the country, sort of working with health authorities in the middle of a uh, pandemic. Um, where does that journey begin for you? Can you tell us a bit about how you know why medicine was it always the case? What you know, how how did you gravitate towards a career in medicine?
1: Can I just say to you, I'm completely the accidental person. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: Often i the best was,
1: yeah, I probably wasn't even expected to become a doctor back in those days. You could just get the score, and I'm kind of essentially didn't know what I was gonna do, just ended started medicine and ended up a doctor at the end of it. So I wasn't one of these people that was sort of school,
0: from the knew start. you were gonna I need to get a good you know, No did no, get good marks I, in
1: high school. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think that was it has been helpful for me because I've been very realistic about this job. I haven't had stars in my eyes and then mm. led to be disappointed later by it. Um, so that's been helpful. But you know I I had no <laughs> and people will know that I'll probably be the least likely to be doing the <laughs> stuff I'm doing uh, because I just wasn't particularly interested in politics or anything, really. Yeah. But uh, basically, I, was, uh, I worked in general practice. And then the only thing that actually happened along the way is I became angry. Um, and the journey of that was, was I was really angry about what happened to because I, in terms of the care of the elderly. Uh, I did a lot of aged care. I was really angry about the system being essentially a very, uh, sometimes becoming a very uh, bureaucratic system that was just written, that developed, treated patients like um, a number or a conveyor belt in terms of decision-making and, and with no thought. And particularly with regards to a lot of my patients who were dying um, in you know, terminal conditions that were just shifted off to hospital Without any thought, just because it was medically legally defensive yeah. <laughs> from the nursing point of view at a facility, I, I, I was always, I was always um, struck by one patient of mine who was, and uh, probably, probably covers everything, was that she, she. Um, Used to, she had severe uh, lung lung disease. Um, basically, you know, from smoking. She was still smoking. She was in this aged care facility, mm. and she was being shifted to a, a facility. You know, it shufled off because she was, you know, had trouble breathing in the middle of the night. Shifted off to because she was going to die at some stage from this condition. Every mm. you know, couple of weeks to the emergency department because the nurses panicked, and then she got sent off, and then she um, um, always came back and said. And then I took over a care, and she was telling me about how horrible it was, how horrible she was treated in hospital, how they, they always said, why the hell are you here again? Yeah. You know, uh, sometimes even someone said, you know you're going to die, so why are you coming here? Um, it was just pretty appalling, and it was far away from humanity that I could see. And then I explained to her, you know, you don't actually have to go. You have a choice not to actually go to hospital, and you have a choice to be treated palliatively, and just to frankly enjoy the rest of your life yeah, and, and, you know, when you're sweet, when and you.
0: between emergency yeah, yeah. And, wards
1: and, and, and when you go, I'm gonna make sure that you uh, get treated so you're comfortable and I'll I'll make sure the morphine and it'll, it'll relax you and make sure you're you you do not have pain or shortness of breath and mm. you know, and you'll go out in style and you'll be comfortable. Um, but you know, you don't you have a choice not to do that. You're allowed to say no to treatment. Yeah. And she went, Oh my God, can I? <laughs> because I realised she she felt like she wasn't a she was a victim of the system and the system this is what you did. Yeah. Whereas she had felt so disempowered and I was so angry about that that really that catapulted me into initially just getting involved in a couple of small projects with the um divisions of general practice to develop um strategies for advanced care planning so that you know, people could actually write down what they wanted, so that the nursing staff wouldn't automatically send them to nursing hospital every time. Right. Um, and the, the, the journey of it was was that this woman later she did die, but I said to her, "Look, you know, you know, you, you're going to die one day, but you you can go out and style and come to you." You've got to break out your grange now, mate. Okay? <laughs> Enjoy it. And she was so much happier because she didn't feel like a victim of a system. This yes. weight had come off her shoulders. Yes. And it's ironic because she did die, but she died peacefully and she died happy. But she was no longer a victim of a, a sort of a, basically a headless um, system driven by medical, legal and bureaucratic um, systems, yes. which is what medicine should not be about.
0: Absolutely. I mean, so I mean, you sort of skipped, uh, it was a really interesting sort of point. I mean, was it, it sounds like a bit of a road to Damascus moment for you. So that was, you know, the, that what you're saying is that, that that particular case, that patient, opened your eyes to, to the sort of changes that you could make. So, no, well, well, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. So basically, I got involved in a thing called aged care panels. It was a supported a little, little tiny little group, tiny little project, developed a bit of work. Then and then, I think the journey of life, which I will explain to people, is that you never know what's coming along, so just mm. go with it. I got involved in, the, I, because of that, you realise that uh, a lot more people uh, don't want to get involved than people do want to get involved. Yeah. But basically, because I kept I, I started getting asked to various committees because of some evidence that I understood what occurred practically on the ground. Mm. And uh, to palliative care and age, advanced care planning group, I finally got involved in a thing called the advanced care Directives review in South Australia, which is a review of the legislation in South Australia, mm-hmm. uh, which later actually developed the really the best legislation in Australia for advanced care directives um, in 2013. It took that was about so I started in 2000 about four or five yes. ended up at about uh, but um, you know having done nothing at all, not been interested at all. But basically started on a lot of committees, and I must say I started off really angry initially on all <laughs> these committees. I was just the angry man on these committees initially, and and, and people probably have struggled to cope with me initially. But over where time... Was, where was
0: that anger directed? Was it anger at because, the system or one in
1: particular? Yeah, I, well, I thought this was stupid. Why, why, why doesn't, like, SA Health... Why are they doing this? Or why is this system so stupid? It's ridiculous that this woman, for example, yeah. is being treated in such an inhumane way, really, I thought. Yeah. Um, and, you know, why have we got this insane system where you'd think that there would be humanity at the centre yeah, of it, but yeah, in yeah. fact, it's actually just a, a, a crazy... Um, 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 automatic sure, right. system, yeah. which is as far away from that as possible. But, but basically what happened is I was angry, and, and I must say people probably didn't cope with me in committees, there, but I've <laughs> done the journey of a lot of people, which is actually understanding that uh, really over time, that what you do is you build trust with people, and you get less angry, and you understand their things, so understand what the government, what the lawyers felt, what the nurses felt, what the um, and understand what they did and understand what their needs were. For example, the nurses were very worried that they were going to get sued if they didn't get sent mm. to the hospital, for example, or that the the, 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 the the emergency departments were really sick of it. They didn't have any paperwork. They didn't have any information, so they had to treat it, but they were just tired in the middle of the yeah. night. They probably were really grumpy. Um, and, you know, like, you started to understand it, so then you have to try. Then, instead of actually feeling angry all the time, I realised that we had to work together to try and find solutions. And mm. that's where Cutter pulled me involved in advanced care directive Development, end of life policy development, and particularly yeah. systems development, digital health. Because I realised that was a lot of it as well.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about your because you got very heavily involved in, in e health. Um, mm. So the evolution of the what became the My Health Record and all its various other iterations and names. And we was that sort of did that come out of your committee work that you you got. Sort of drag it. Were you? Were you always tech? Mar- is it could, did you have a tech? Not at all. so you, you, were. Were you? A, you say so you weren't a um, an early adopter. you were more of a reluctant
1: practice. Oh no, oh, no, no, no. I was. I was quite good at sort of on the ground because I was at that stage. I was a, a part owner of a practice, and yeah. I was the IT person. So I kind of knew how the right. the systems in general practice were, which were well ahead of hospitals at that stage. I've got mm. to say, um, but. Because I just knew on the ground what to do, that was fine. It was just practical sort of stuff. Yep. Um, what happened? Will you be surprised how little everybody else knows at that stage? So,
0: you got you came into general practice in the in the early nineties yeah. around, around that time where, where the internet was only just becoming commonplace. thing it was you know, the mid mid nineties there, so that must be just mm. it was sort of an interesting time
1: to be sort of entering that field. Mm. So you know they just needed people, um, and what happened was was because of my working about care directives, I realised that having Patients' wishes documented on a bit of paper was fine, but if that was in somebody's drawer, it was a waste of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, yeah. So we had to get it on some digital form, and to some degree that's why we got involved in digital health and got involved in a few sort of what call preliminary um, care planning projects with Health Connect. The government had these. Sort of preliminary projects around about 2000, 2007, 2008. Got quite involved in that. Because of my involvement in that, um, I later, in about 2010 I think, uh, I, was in, I was invited to the Nicola Roxham's um, independent uh, review of, uh, independent uh, review body, I think, um, of the My Health Record. So it was an independent we were looking at what the My Health Record was supposed to be. Right, right. And And to be frank, when I was on that committee I was probably the, the one who knew what reality should look like. And <laughs> I was really unhappy with what I found, yeah. <laughs> so, and and that probably catapulted later after that. But because I probably did understand, not because I'm the techno, and I think the thing is, that I was the bridge between the techno people, the the ICT people who could not explain what they needed, uh, what was needed, and also the pragmatists. I was the bridge between them, yeah, yeah. and probably helped move it along. But also, um, I also the thing remember, I think my record has been the. the subject of a lot of anger over time. Mm. Um, it's interesting even. But I think I, the thing, I, I could actually see where this was going to end up, which is really that it's at the beginning of a journey, not the end. It's, it's going to be something much bigger than that actually is yeah. uh, that now because we're only starting to put information now and then the benefits will be when we've built up enough information in there. Yeah. But for, for the thing is, is what I noticed was that my job was to try and really hold the line on what this was supposed to be about. Um, and always still explain the vision of what it is, and which is really that. And I'll tell you another story, which is my um, sister-in-law um, ended up in hospital after having a baby, um, her third baby. Unfortunately, um, at the time, she perforated her uterus, and then she ended up in mm-hmm. intensive care with septicemia, a bit like meningococcal disease. Right. Um, in the end, unfortunately, she lost both her legs during that whole thing, and okay. she was in hospital for about six months. And... The thing was, was that I remember sitting with the ICU people who were amazing, um, and I'll give a shout out to Wakefield uh, Calvary Hospital for that. Um, they, but at the time, I remember sitting with the ICU guy and I said, um, you, know, you know, my understanding is she, you know, that she might have an allergy. Um, you know, how often do you get allergy information before you start giving Because my, my sister-in-law basically was going to die. She had blood pressure down to 60 at stage And they right. were shoving every antibiotic into it as possible. Right. Um, and I thought well, we'd been brought in to say goodbye. Um, and they were shoving every, hoping that she just missed it. But afterwards, they said, they said, I said, how often, you know, if she's, got, if she's got an allergy, how often do you know about these allergies? How much information do you get when they just turn up? Because, yes. you know, you've the wrong antibiotic she dies, definitely in this case. And they said, Never. Which and I, I just thought that in in 2010, yeah. why are we living in a world where the emergency department does not have basic information about allergies? And that's because all our health systems are all disconnected. People have bought all their own systems and they're yep. not talking to each other. And, Basically, what the My Health Record is, is essentially a, a, a sort of a drop box where you put down basic, you know, the same documents are already out there. They're already out there. They're sent, discharge letters, whatever. You put it in one spot. At least if an emergency department, they see somebody, they can open, up, open it up and see if there's some da- data about allergies and, and medications, mm-hmm. and they can at least... Make a much better call because at the moment people are going, oh gee, I want perfect information when they come in, and I say you're getting nothing now, and <laughs> you would have, you know, you got lucky with my sister-in-law, yeah, but yeah. you could have killed her easily if you have given the wrong antibiotic.
2: So, we
1: and didn't... I think that's the that's the Sorry. thing I hold to because I that's what I've held to, despite the fact that they're, you know, look, there's quite rightly, um. um how could I put it, um, you, know, a, a, you know, a rigorous assessment of things like the My Health Record. Mm. But ultimately, I have never let go of the fact that our job, my job is to try and get at the end of this, my time to try and progress the situation where when a patient goes, sees an emergency department doctor or goes to, you know, ends up in the country, seeing a doctor in the country or goes into state, that that doctor or that individual providing care at least has some basic information about what their history is, their uh, allergies, their medications, and their advanced care directive as to what treatment they want mm-hmm. because, frankly, they're the things you need to start making basic decisions which are in line with patients' requests and what they want and safe.
0: So, I mean, was it that, that, that sort of sense of, you know, because obviously you've, you've had a few wins through, this, through your work. How, how does that feel when you do actually see some of these, you know, like a case like that where which leads to something um, happening that, that's going to help not only the people, you know, in your care or in your family but, that, you know, the, the national population hopefully? Is, it, um, is that what sort of drives you to keep sort of doing the work? I mean, you can go to the position we're in now where you've just recently in the last few months become the vice president of the AMA. I mean, is that what drives you to keep sort of pushing you to, for positions where you can actually try and make a difference because you've seen those wins or what's the motivation?
1: Um, um, I think my my role has now become – so I started off in all this area, but it's interesting as time has gone on, What my job has changed a little bit. Um, it's to hold to the vision of what this is all about, hold true to what matters, you know, um, I think, and, and what I can be with myself at the end of my career – um, but my other jobs are to be the link person because I've met so many great people along the way to link all the right people together so that they work together because what I realize is a lot of people are working in the same direction. They just don't know about each other. And and I meet a lot of people in these meetings and, and committees and it's, it's been wonderful, really. And most people are trying to do the right thing. Mm. The flip side is I'm is, um, probably a um, bit of a strategist in terms of working out uh, how to get where we need to go yeah. sometimes a sense of what needs to happen both from the point of view of bringing the right stakeholders together, uh, work the politics. Um, one of the things I was going to say to you is one of my biggest things is actually, um, you know, one of my secrets, I think, is actually um, managing meetings. <laughs> um, one of the things I've actually brought in for general practice is really about um, it's, it's, it's it's understanding when you walk into a meeting what um, who's there, but also understanding kind of what's in their hearts right. or what, what they're trying to get to, try to work together with all the people that you want, but also understand there may be people in the meeting, and there will be, unfortunately, because this is the world we live in, that there will be people with vested interests. There will Mm. be people who uh, have personality disorders, who are psychopathic, and there's a small percentage of that everywhere, (laughs) who are often the ones that turn up. And to really be able to work with the others to either um, isolate them often and make sure that they don't um, damage what the Mm. greater good is, uh, because they can do incredible damage to the greater good. And to try and, as I said, to the, with with the thought that as I'm, I'm a representative of an independent organisation which has to hold true to what it believes, that to hold to those things and to work with the others to the greatest ability to move forward, to get back to the aim of making sure that we try to improve things for patients.
0: From the outside, there's often, you know, I, I mean, I'm interested to know what sort of um... – there's all you know in anything in life when you're doing some of the roles that you're the sorts of things that you're doing and you're trying to push for the sort of changes that you, that you you're involved with with pursuing. There's still going to be pushback whether it's from the community on on things that don't you know they might not like you know for example we just we were talking about not that I want to get back into it but the, but the health record you know obviously there was a whole mm. lot of community concern about privacy and those kind mm. of issues that, that feed into it but then sort of getting closer to to the profession there's there there's often criticism from other doctors from your colleagues about you know who might disagree with certain um directions that that those sort of policy um things that that, that are required to to, to make the sort of changes that you're talking about do you you get much in the way you know doctors colleagues questioning what you're doing you know do do you do you, do you feel that, you know, how do you balance the, the you know, the legitimate criticisms that people might have that, that there are sections of the, the medical uh, profession that aren't perhaps being listened to or, or or concerns that might need to be raised versus just people taking pot shots from the sidelines?
1: Um, exactly. I mean, it's easy to take potshots, what I've realised it's a lot hard. It's a lot harder. It's easy to criticise. It's a lot harder to create. Have and you heard much? That do I've you realized. get much of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look, Part of this role is you've got to have a thick hide, Mm. okay? Mm. And and, and that's not because you're not listening to people, um, because I do. The first thing you're going to try and do is engage them and actually absolutely listen to their concerns and try to explain your side of things and hope to come to some, because quite often it's actually explaining. I'll I'll give you an example. I mean, one of the silliest things about the My Health Record, I think, is this idea that, oh, I'm not going to use it because the information is not perfect, right? right? Okay. Oh, there could be an error on there. And I had this once from this doctor who said he wasn't going to accept my medical history in the My Health Record because it was done by GP, right? So um, basically, what I explained to him is that the studies show that the discharge letters from doctors coming out of hospital at the moment have about a 12% error rate in their medications. Right, twelve percent error rate. So they're sending me discharge letters with a twelve percent error rate in medications already. Mm. So this doctor, who's who's so high mighty, is actually okay making a twelve percent error rate, and because he, but he thinks he's so good, but basically having a go at me about yeah. possibility I might my information may be wrong and it comes from a GP. Firstly, it was disrespectful, obviously from their perspective. Oh, for sure, but. The thing I would say is what I was explaining was that the my health record, all it is, it's the same documents that are sent you're sending as a discharge letter to me anyway. Yeah. And you know, when I get a discharge letter from a nursing from a hospital, I know there's gonna be a twelve percent error rate. I that's don't why, trust that's
0: it. why we check things. <laughs>
1: Correct. Use your brain. <laughs> that's all I'd say. And the thing is what I had to explain was that, you know, to be so, understand that the My Health Record is not bulletproof. It was never created for that. It, what it was created was to be a repository for the very same documents out there that do have errors. But every time you look at a document, whether it's one sent to you by, directly by fax or by letter or by email, or it's on the My Health Record, you should be... Assessing it to make and double checking it with the patient, for example, to make sure it's right. Mm. You know, <laughs> you know, you do want to double check. Um, but the thing is, is that so that's one thing. So really, that's silly. So do you understand how that's how I would argue that point about my yeah. health record. Um, but the flip side is, is what I would say is. Okay, but they're saying, "Oh, gee, you know, oh, I might get, um, you know, the patient is, you know, it, 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 you know." I, but at the same time, they're going, "I have no information about the patient when they come in," and I, that's why I'm actually saying that, you know, to my that woman, "Oh, yeah, you're, you're, why are you here all the time, you know, you're, you're hopeless, you know, what." God, they're treating them that way. If they have some information about number one, what their medical history was, that they have an advanced care directive, they might not even be sent there. Yes. But also if they are, they would know what to do to treat the lady palliatively and treat her with some compassion instead of treating her like a piece of meat, basically. That's yeah. <laughs> the way she is. And the thing is, is that for me that 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 is understanding that and also understanding that sometimes when you actually kind of have understood the system and you've actually been a part of it so long. You're actually looking about three steps ahead, right? Mm. Um, And sometimes the people that you're trying to bring along, they haven't been a part of this. They can't see three steps ahead. They can't see, for example, that one day the greatest benefit will be for our children because they will have records from when they're young. Mm. And these records will be really useful as they grow older, you see, and that's the long-term benefit of the My Health Record. And but even now, there'll be benefits for people as well. And so the idea is, number one, to be have a thick hide, be compassionate people's views. Okay, so I've been quite hard on that doctor there, but yes. what I would say to you is that you can understand my frustration about that sort of. There's a certain arrogance about that sort of thinking, yeah. which you know is is you have to deal with. Try to deal with it. Listen to them. Explain the other side of it. Right. Sometimes they're still not going to wear it because they're not going to listen to you. Mm. You're going to have to suck it up and take take the, take the the have the um, thick hide. But you've got to stay true to what you believe yeah. and understand that if you're sticking to your principles and you actually understand what the future holds, that you're going to keep going. And that I think, because, look, I've got to live with myself at the end of this. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got to live with myself and I, I, I don't feel... Um, and I, I, I'll, I'll, my greatest regret. Somebody has, people have said to me at various stages, Chris, um, you know what? Why do you do this? You know, you know what? Why do you give up on certain things? And oh, that's not about my health record. Actually, about other things, um, because you know you could, you could, uh, you you'll be able to sleep at night better. And I'll say, no, no, I won't be able to sleep with myself if I don't mm. <laughs> keep going, because I would have actually given up and not stayed true to what was actually. I believed in the start. It would yeah. mean that I've actually compromised myself.
0: It's an interesting point, you know, that because it is so important. Um, I was, you know, I'm just remembering a, a conversation I had in a, in a, in a previous episode with um, Dr. Neil Jane Krum, a Melbourne surgeon who you might remember was heavily involved with the campaign to get child asylum seekers moved off Nauru, um, which was ultimately successful. You talked about. Earlier in the chat, that we were talking about, you know, it's not always your 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 role um, to to be nice or to to agree with everything. It sometimes you have to be, you know, really nudge. Whether it's governments in in the case of the asylum seeker issue, what do you see as the role of doctors in this kind of a space where we're pushing governments to to make policy around you know whether it's things like asylum seeker or you know the climate change um, uh, issues that you know we we flagged earlier in the chat as well what is the what is the role of doctors because you know that was the whole i guess point of a, a campaign like like the one um to to get the children off off nauru which was doctors trying you know to, to to follow their beliefs that there was this was a public health issue in the in the very best interests of of the of those people um where is where is the line though for for, for, for what is the role of doctors in, in in that space
1: do you think um it's to Get back to the principles of what I said the AMA mm. was about—the the, the interests of patients and their health, mm. and the interests of doctors—insofar as that's the case—to um, stick to what we signed up for, and to always, finally, also base it on the two principles: that has to be about health and about science, and not to stray off those issues. Now, um, climate change is probably a really good topic mm. because um, look, look, one needs to understand that even in organisation like the AMA, there are different points of view yep. about it, right? Um, and, you know, that, that will vary. And probably a lot for climate change is a generational thing. You know, it's probably a generational thing, but not always the case. Mm. Um, I think we, we we are okay if we stick on health and science. And and the thing about it is is that we have, just recently, for example, it rose to some probably greater promise than usual because we have been advocating for management of COVID on one thing, health and science. And Australia has done incredibly well with that. Yes. Uh, Let's reflect back on two climate effects of health. There's clear evidence for that. Yeah. Um, the labs at Countdown, and it's just been released the 2020 Lancet data, is is pretty dire. And it just even recently, for example, it's thought that you know there's probably about 400 odd excess deaths in Australia just from the bushfires, for example.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, and countless number of other um, you know, hospital attendances. But if you look at just that, that's about half the number of people that have died just from COVID just in this year, um, and that's just on the bushfires over a short period of time. Mm. Um, we just base it on science and health, and we just advocate, and we do it in a calm way. And we don't, we, we have tried to stay – with regards to climate change, we have actually endorsed the Zali-Sigle bill
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: because uh, it's, a, it's a, the Climate Act, which is a very sensible act. It's deep politicized that it's not making judgments about how you um, – Hit targets to maintain um, to the the the, the, the uh, to reduce global warming, but also because then and its effects on health. But mm-hmm. so it just embeds embed that into health. And the trick is to to get into that area without being too emotive. And that's the thing. I think um, sometimes what actually happens is um, we get into things where uh, we appear just too emotional about things. When really, if you think about it, I think. The group of like the AMA, as long as we can absolutely always go back to our positions based on our principles and yeah. on health and science, we're in a strong position. Once we veer out of that, once we start talking specifically about the Arctic Shelf or that sort of thing which, or you know, other areas which are not in our area, that's where we're going to run into trouble. Mm. Um, and I think I, 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 there's no problem just sticking on those, those things. If, yeah. if there's evidence of health effects uh, due to climate change and there is clearly evidence for that, uh, we're going to go into that because we have to hold true to ourselves and it's just like my my some of the other work I've had sometimes. Um, it hasn't and, – and, you know, the, 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 we're, we're in our best not when we're liked but when we hold true to ourselves and prosecute the things that uh, are, are clearly the case and that people therefore can trust us about.
0: I could – one of the other things, I mean, I could list the the, the amount of committees and bodies that you're involved with. You've mentioned a number of them. Um, over the course of the conversation. It takes some time to it. it's a usually it's a lot of commitments that you have on top of your practice. But of course you've got, you know, you've got a young family, you've got um, you've got your you know, your clinical practice you have to do, you've got CPD, you've got all these meetings, you've got a uh, how is there any time spare time left for you? How do you and how do you manage all these, all these, keep all these plates spinning, and make sure that you know you're giving it 100. percent It's one of the questions that, that, with a lot of the people I speak to on this podcast, these are doctors in a similar situation to yourself, where they've got all these different interests and, and commitments going on. How do you? you um, mean, there's a hundred different ways to manage that. How how do you um, approach that, striking that balance with all of those different elements?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I, I have people have said to me a few times, why do you do this? You need more balance in your life, Chris. Um, I, my, my, there's a few things. The first thing is, is that I, my, my family and my wife, particularly, she's a, doctor, she's she's me, a GP. She's a GP as well, isn't she?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's really important because she actually gets what I do. And there's been a few times when I've actually felt as if it's been so overwhelming but it's been important, like trying to get the advanced care directives uh, act through and things like that, where it's yeah. actually been quite overwhelming. But she's she's actually – instead of actually just saying to me, you've got to stop, she's actually said to me sometimes, um, look, this is important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I understand mm-hmm. if you have to keep going. So I've, I've always felt that support from her, yep. both in terms of emotionally, and practically, because she gets it. Um, maybe she may not have been, she'd been in another area. I do also understand the ideas of balance. Um, the thing is, is that for me at the end of this, and, and you know, I'm, I'm I'm not looking for higher office, let's put it that way, um, I, I, I'm, I've taken the positions where I felt I needed to. And, and one of the things I did do was actually support uh, Dr. Omar Korshid, who's our yes. current AMA yes. president, and because um, um, essentially um, he was clearly the best candidate and he needed somebody to run with him, and that's why I run with run to become vice president, sure. which has given me more work <laughs> more than maybe I, I had bargained on. Uh, but, you know, what I'd say is that, um, yeah, I have balance, but balance is kind of different for me. Balance is that, number one, at the end of this, I'm going to walk away and I'm not going, to, I mean, probably sooner than people might think that I, I will not, I don't feel invested, but there'll be another life for me in terms of going on footy and cricket and, and spending yeah. time with my family and my wife. Um, I'm not invested as in like I've got vested interest in this and I don't feel that, you know, I'm going to make an industry of this. And I think the other thing is that the balance is more over my life that um, when I've done, I'll be, I've walked away from it. And I'll feel that, you know, uh, the other balance will be to do the other things that, I need, that I'd like to do. Uh, so, but the thing is, there is a time and a place for things, you know, mm. things like uh, the advanced care directives, uh, changing of, you know, I've been the chair of the ethics committee for four years and that was unbelievable in terms of stuff I had to deal with, um, changing thought process, improving end of life care thinking, um, digital health, improving digital health, not just my health record, it's about digital health, uh, to try not make more work for us, but to improve things. But also, you know, recently just trying to, you know, make sure that the community is safe with COVID and that they trust what was going on. Um, I think at the end of it, I'll feel that I've done my bit and I'll be able to walk away and uh, and, and that, that will be, the balance will be, then I'll get on with the rest of my life and feel as if uh, I won't need to do that. And then really, I'm really trying at the moment because I really have seen some amazing young leaders come through mm-hmm. the AMA and other organizations to really try and mentor them and feel that they'll they be able to
2: hey, continue them. Because I,
1: yeah. oh, seriously, I've seen some amazing people come through the AMA and I can, can name quite a few. Um, the current and past uh, the doctors and training reps uh, the chairs, um, yes. their, their deputies, their students. I mean, I was nothing like that. I started in my thirties for <laughs> <when> anything, <laughs> late thirties. These people are ready to go now. Yeah. They will be leaders, and and I, I have not I have full faith in their ability to do that. Um, the job I'd love to be able to by the time I finish to just feel as though I've been able to give them the confidence to keep going, yeah. and 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 and. Fight for things they believe in, and not feel like they're hindered by um, by by artificial constraints. Which uh, um, which is something I've realised. You've just got to be yourself and do what you believe in.
0: You've sort of answered almost you know anticipated my next question, but I was just I always like to ask with these conversations. What advice would you give um, for doctors? Whether it's you know the the leaders of the future that you just mentioned, the ones coming through, um, some of the you know. Positions in, 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 you know, whether it's student representation and, or interns and some of the roles that, that, that they're able to, to take on even in their, their junior years, through to someone like yourself, maybe who's coming to medical politics later in, in, in their or middle of their career or later in their career. What advice would you have for, for people who might feel that same anger that, that you have felt at, at various? points in, in want to get involved, whether it's with the AMA or various other health bodies, associations, colleges, what are the pitfalls to watch out for and what have been the, the, the main rewards, do you think, that they should?
1: Um, what I'd on say on? is medicine is a hard career. Um, There's a lot of pressure. Mm. Um, when many people, when I told you that I didn't have any aspirations, really, uh, a lot of I've seen a lot of people come in with the stars in their eyes and become cynical because mm. they, didn't, they They got angry and they realized it wasn't exactly what they thought. Um the thing is, is that you have a few choices. You can either be cynical or you can try to do something. Um, I am as flawed a person as you can get, number one. Um, I've never felt uh, adequate for any of the positions I've taken. I'm going to tell you that. And if that's a reassurance to a lot of people, that they should because I've never felt adequate for any of these positions. I don't have any other... You notice I have very few letters after my name apart from my medical degree and my, my fellowship and, and a farmer. Um, it's basically very little. And the thing is is that... But but that doesn't mean that what you bring to the table isn't of value. And, um, and at whatever stage... Feel like you can um, and don't feel – just be yourself and be true to yourself. And I think that has a value beyond just money, which is – I'll tell you this, the career hasn't been good from from financial sense. (laughs) But but it's good from the point of view of you'll feel like um, that there are aspects that that there is hope in terms of a career that's long and hard and that you'll feel you can walk away. A feeling contributed which many of my colleagues do but then there's also others who get just really cynical and get caught up in the system or it just becomes a number crunching game um just be yourself be true to yourself hold it hold it till the end mm. and then try to bring on the next lot as well and then hopefully you can walk away happy happier with your career and feel as though your your contribution um was something that you can uh, uh, feel some satisfaction of, and that you could feel the next pe- next lot, the next the ones you've helped hopefully along, can carry the torch on from when you've left off.
0: Twenty twenty has been quite an incredibly tough year for so many, especially people in your profession. Um, but on top of all those other stresses that you've been dealing with, and, and the work that you've been doing, um, I I did want to mention this towards the end uh, that you are also. Carry the burden of being an Adelaide Crows fan. I just wanted to ask are you okay?
1: No, 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 no. You see, what I would say is that, despite the fact we were bottom of the table, we we're the top of the draft. We've got the number one draft pick next week, and I've been. And if you talk about things that I focus on in those few minutes that I have, i will yeah. be watching that very carefully. So I'll be. I do have other aspects to my life, and I know uh, uh, who we want to pick as number one draft.
0: <laughs> well, I brought it up because I, you know, you mentioned you know when you do walk away from from medical politics, that'll be one of the things you want to focus on. So I I, I, I wish you all the best when, when you do you know finally you can. Just side that you've, you've done enough in this realm and you can go back and focus on your practice and, and hopefully the, the, the crows are in a better spot by then?
1: Yes, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very confident of that at the moment. So uh, uh, that you, One needs to be optimistic and also understand that sport is just a metaphor for life and, and, you know, the downs are just something about and you have to suck it up in those times because the downs are about uh, so that you can enjoy the good times later.
0: Huge thanks again to Dr. Chris Moy for his time. Um, obviously there's a lot going on in South Australia as he covered in the chat with um COVID and, and all the role that he has and the work that he's doing. Um, and I wish everyone there the best as um they, they work to, to keep that under control there. Uh, another quick shout for the Creative Careers and Medicine conference, which is right around the corner again, the 12th and 13th of December. It's a virtual event. Get your tickets at the Creative Careers medicine site that's criticalfreemedicine.com for the, the event the links to the events page and get your ticket Norman Swan will be on the bill. I'm really excited, as everybody else is, I'm sure, to to hear what he has to say. It's been a huge year for him. It's going to be a massive weekend for for everyone involved in the event. And as I said at the start, you can, if you're unable to to watch some of those sessions live over that weekend, you can catch up um, later. So head over to creativecareersinmedicine.com and get your ticket. This has been an Embrace Creative production for Creative Careers in Medicine. I'll be back very soon with more episodes.